I just came back from a conference uh, where equity was at the forefront. Uh, and it was a wonderful conference, great sessions, amazing people. And yet I kept hearing throughout the, the day, people say things like, I'd love to lean more into this, whether it's their DEI work or it's cultural competence, um, sort of broader strokes. But the, where do I find the time? I was thinking about where we might start. And so I, I wanted to offer some five steps that I think could be helpful for listeners. Uh, and the first is just really assessing your starting point. Um, so in saying that, it is taking an opportunity to just gauge your level of cultural competence. My guest today on Mission Impact is Danielle Marshall for another Learning Out Loud episode where we do a deep dive into a topic. Today, Danielle and I talk about cultural competence or cultural humility and how you can work on and enhance your cultural competence as well as how each of us approaches our continued learning in this area. Too many people are seeing diversity, equity, and inclusion work as an add-on or a nice to have. But I would posit that if you want to have an organizational culture that is healthy, that means it needs to be healthy for everyone, which means you need to integrate inclusion and diversity and equity work into everything you do. And as Danielle mentioned, she's hearing a lot about people struggling to know where to begin and where to, how to fit it in. And therefore, I really appreciated Danielle's five-step framework that she laid out for increasing your cultural competence and how you can really integrate it into your everyday. She recommends starting with an assessment, checking in on where are you now? Where do you feel comfortable in your cultural competence and where would you like to stretch yourself? And then set some learning goals and create a learning plan or schedule. What resources are you going to tap into and use to enhance your cultural competence and learning? What do you enjoy doing already? Are you a reader? If you're listening to this, you're probably already a podcast listener. There are lots and lots of podcasts that focus on these issues. What movies or TV shows could you watch to widen your horizons? How might you integrate increasing your cultural competence into your professional development goals for next year? As I mentioned, one of the things that I integrated into my life and my learning was reading romance novels by your not usual suspect authors. In other words, not all white women. And since 2020, I have read a lot of romance novels by Pipe Bach authors and, and others. Romance novels have become a favorite with the pandemic. I simply needed lighter fare to get through. So if you need a template for creating a learning plan for yourself, I actually have a, a resource for that on my website. Just go to gracesocialsector.com forward slash nonprofit dash resources, and you can find the professional learning plan template. Mission Impact is the podcast for nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategy consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build an organizational culture where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Mission Impact is brought to you by Grace Social Sector Consulting. 
Grace Social Sector brings you whole brain strategy consulting for nonprofits and associations. We help you move your mission forward, engage all voices, and have fun while we're doing it. And we combine left brain strategy and analysis with right brain wisdom about human complexities for a proven whole brain, whole organization process through which every stakeholder thrives. Reach out to us for support and facilitation of strategic planning, demonstrating your impact, auditing your services for mission alignment, or just get started with an organizational assessment. We especially love working with staff, nonprofits, and associations with human-centered missions. And before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to let you know that I am hosting a special year-end Nonprofit Leadership Roundtable on Tuesday, December 14th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. This virtual event is an opportunity for reflection and planning. We'll be taking a pause, evaluating our 2023, and envisioning our ideal 2024. I know this time of year can be, mean lots of stress and demands as you're wrapping up this final quarter. So take some time to come together, take a step back, and regroup. Give yourself the gift of time for contemplation of your values, your priorities, and your goals for your organization this holiday season. We have a limited number of spots available, so check out the show notes for a link to reserve your spot now. Hope to see you there. Welcome, Danielle. Welcome to Mission Impact, and welcome back to another Learning Out Loud episode. Thank you, Carol. Always a pleasure to join you. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so we decided today to focus in uh, our conversation in on cultural competence. It's a topic that's popped up a couple times as we've been talking, but really wanted to do more of a deep dive. Um, so I'm curious, let's, let's just start with definitions. H how do you use and, and kind of see this word in, in your work or, or concept, if you will? Yeah, I appreciate that we're starting there because it is something that I'm hearing a lot more people use in conversation and a definition certainly is going to be helpful. So when I think about cultural competence, it's really our ability to, to navigate and interact effectively with people across various cultures. Um, and so when you think about it, it's not just an understanding or an awareness of different cultural norms um, or practices, but it is a ability for one to lean in uh, in terms of practicing inclusivity, openness, even adaptability from um, you know, what they understand about that culture. Uh, and so as we're thinking about that, this is really embodying your, your knowledge, your attitude, uh, and the practical skills you would bring to uh, the table when you're navigating uh, across difference. Yeah, so I, I had often heard the term or, or been in circles where the term cultural competence was used, um, you know, at one organization was, was part of a group that was building an assessment for cultural competence for a particular field. Um, but I, I, I've also heard recently, or you know, in the last couple of years, run into some other versions. Uh, one being cultural humility, which I really appreciated because um, I always felt a little uncomfortable, um, kind of saying I'm culturally competent. <laughs> like, how do you get to that stage? That um, certainly you can always become more culturally competent, from my point of view. 
and there's always things to learn. So the idea of, of bringing humility to it just felt like a, a wonderful place to start. Um, but it's also interesting to me kind of how diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially kind of coming out of the history of the United States versus other fields that have named it more intercultural competence that have been in the international context and and really in some ways have, have kind of almost been siloed from each other and, and not talking, even though in many ways dealing with, you know, these core core skills and, and approaches. Yeah. Um, that, and that's a good distinction that you bring up. When I, when I talk about cultural competence, competence, I think I also am talking about intercultural competence. Uh, and though I can appreciate the distinction being made, and the reason I say that is in this country, you know, we may focus on how we interact across cultures here, but like we are in a much smaller world than we ever have been before. And so it's not unusual to interact with someone who is not homeborn, you know, in the U.S. Uh, that you might be working, whether they've moved here or you're working across uh, borders. Uh, for me, when I'm building cultural competence, I'm really thinking very much so about how I interact across difference regardless, right, and, and how we can apply that uh, skillfully. Um, the other thing that you said that I, I appreciate is this idea of cultural humility, right? Can we ever fully be confident? Probably not, right? I, I joke often because I have a, a 15 year old and she reminds me how <laughs> incompetent I am um, within my own culture, right? And I say that jokingly, but part of the reason is because there are other intersectionalities that come in. So like just the fact that we're different generations means her lens on the world is different from mine. And so what I understand to be true may be evolving even within the culture that represents me. It, you know, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer who also happens to be an African-American woman versus her Gen Z. Uh, and we have very different approaches uh, to, to the world and how we see things. And so I'm, I'm always taking those things into consideration. But when we, we talk about that humility, I think it is the ability to really be in a place where we can evaluate ourselves and how we've shown up in the moment and we self-critique in order to be more confident, right? As we're learning things, how do you integrate those into your, your understanding of cultural groups um, and start to apply it as you learn more? Yeah. And for me growing up um, outside of the United States uh, internationally, I think I, when I thought of cultural competence, I thought of it often in that international context. And then to come back to the U.S. in late high school through college and, and since then, um, and really over, you know, those, those years and across generations, as you're talking about as a Gen Xer, um, all the nuance of our particular country, its history, the, and the experiment, honestly, that we're doing that, really has never existed to try to have a multicultural society where, and we certainly have a long way to go, where it's not, and this is in the ideal, this is not where we are, it's not that we are looking to have everyone simply assimilate to the dominant culture, which was, I think, the assumption and is the assumption in many cultures that any outsider will simply figure out how to fit in. But we're trying to do something different, or at least a segment of the country is now trying to do something different. 
which yeah. which perhaps has never been done before, or maybe it has, and I just I don't know. There's there's the history that I'm unaware of. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> there's so much in what you just said. Uh, you know, when it comes to this country, and I have thought about this quite a bit. I mean, it it feels like America was based on this idea of the melting pot, right? And we talk about the melting pot frequently. But what is missed in this understanding is it really was about assimilation, right? So we, we have all of these cultures and all of these people from different lands. We bring them together. We sort of mix everybody into the pot. And what gets boiled down is dominant culture, right? Like there, there's a particular thing. You have to blend yourself, if you will, into this, this stew that we're making or this soup. Um, and the reality is people were never going to fully give up themselves. We've seen a lot of pressure over the years for folks to assimilate. And I think what we are seeing at this point is a major backlash against people having to give up their identity, their cultural heritage. Uh, so whether it be the native language you spoke, um, how you wear your hair, how you dress, the activities that you do, people are pulling closer back to their own cultures in terms of saying, like, I'm, I'm happy to be American, I'm happy to be in this country, and I also need you to respect the fact that there are some things that are culturally different that I want to keep. Yeah, for sure. And and certainly that assimilation was is not and was not benign. There were many ways in which it was certainly weaponized and just in, in really horrific ways. Um, and now with the... Uh, and I feel like a, a, there are many folks who want to be able to be respectful across differences and and acknowledge those and and uh, you know not expect everyone to just fit in in a certain way, um, which comes back to the the notion of building those muscles around cultural competence. And, and I think one of the things that I would say is it, it almost feels like we need to learn to value other cultures. Mm. Right? So as I think about assimilation, what ends up happening in my experience is because assimilation has been pushed to the forefront and people are constantly using that as the yardstick by which we measure right or wrong, you know, beauty standards, language, whatever it happens to be, um, when someone sits outside of your understanding of the world, you have a problem, right? The differences are bad in their mind. And to me, when I think of difference, difference simply means different. It's not a good, it's not a bad, it is just a different way of looking at a particular thing. So whether that be speaking, acting, thinking. Um, and so if we can get to a place where we value the differences, right? And see them as opportunities to be stronger and smarter, build better together. You know, those are things that are going to matter um, in the longer term. But it is something that I, at least with some of the clients that I'm working with on a coaching level, they've never stopped to even think about. Mm. That. It, it's never occurred to them that they're, that this is something that we should be speaking about. We don't learn this in school. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a pressure, um, or, or organizations are, and individuals are feeling the pressure to, um, you know, how do we manage all the different things that uh, we're, we're wanting to do? And, and so, you know, time can become kind of a barrier or sometimes an excuse for not dealing with this because all of it, you know, they're, they're not easy things to learn. There's always more to learn. You're going to make mistakes. It's uncomfortable. 
Uh, so, you know, just saying you don't have time for it can be an easy way out. Yeah. That's something that, again, I'm encountering quite a bit. I just came back from a conference uh, where equity was at the forefront, uh, and it was a wonderful conference, great sessions, amazing people. And yet I kept hearing throughout the, you know, the day, people say things like, I'd love to lean more into this, whether it's their DEI work or it's cultural competence, um, sort of broader strokes. But where do I find the time? Right. Like this is important to me. So I do value it. So at least they were coming from the perspective of I can see the merit of this. Um, but they struggled with how does this fit in? And so I, I was thinking about where, you know, we might start. And so I, I wanted to offer, you know, some five steps that I think could be helpful for listeners. Uh, and the first is just really assessing your starting point. Um, so in saying that, it is taking an opportunity to just gauge your level of cultural competence. Right. So if you want to be proactive in this, do you have a baseline of understanding? Uh, and there are a number of tools out there that can be used to establish a baseline, uh, whether it be of your full cultural competencies, of the tools you use. One of the, the resources I particularly like is called the Intercultural Development Inventory, and it gives people an idea of how they um, are most likely to show up uh, when it comes to dealing with people that are different from them. Uh, and so from that standpoint, like what are the tools that you actively reach for every day when you encounter someone who's culturally different? Uh, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity in there because it, it's giving you a sense of, you know, if I've never thought about my own culture, how do I relate to that before I worry about relating to anyone else's? You know, am, am I willing to face some truth about my own cultural competence? Right? And to the point you made earlier, like we all have room to grow. I would say even people that work in this space on a regular basis, like, and maybe more so, we understand there's so much space for us to grow because we never will fully understand um, every culture and also putting the caveat on that cultures change, right, over time. So if they're always evolving, no one is going to ever be there, so to speak. Um, there's always room for us to, to develop. Um, and, you know, the second step that I would say is, is this is about setting your goals. So if you have a baseline understanding of here's where I'm starting from, from cultural competence, here's what I need to learn. How do you articulate that vision, right? Turn that into short-term goals, long-term goals, so that we can start thinking about what this might mean. So it may be uh, that we want to learn more about uh, language. It could be I want to understand uh, eye contact in certain cultures. It, 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 there are so many places one could go with it, right? But the way that I always ask people to think about it are like, what are the specific culture, cultural norms or values that I need to understand better? You know, and, and to make this more personal, how do you think about your own work? Right? Are there groups that I need to be, uh, either communicate better with or I need to be able to figure out how to work more effectively and our norms and values around this work project don't align? That's a really good place to start. Like, I'm not saying learn everything about culture in one day, but is there a particular group I have to you know, understand better in order to be effective in my role? So those are the first two things. And then the third thing that I would say is you want to create a learning schedule for yourself. Um, so when we're thinking about a learning schedule, like is this daily, is it weekly? When are you planning to incorporate time for learning? Uh, and it could be even as small as 15 minutes a day, right? So you're reading an article, you're watching a video. Um, I tell a lot of my clients right now, you, and you wanna make this 
fun for yourself too. Um, you could be watching Netflix, visiting a museum, festivals. There's so many ways that we can interact, one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Um, but what you want to really figure out is like how many hours within that week can I dedicate to enhancing my cultural competency? Because when we can set that time, we have a plan, you know, we well, the beginning of a plan, because at least I know I have an hour a day. I have 15 minutes a day. This is how I'm going to move this forward. Um, you know, and then step four is going to be about resources. So as we're, we're thinking about the resources, again, this comes back to what are the, the things I can tap into? So are there articles I want to read or books, podcasts? You know, we're doing a podcast right now. Um, again, Netflix and Amazon both have developed specific genres about cultural groups, which I have found to be really interesting to hear the narration of stories, fictional and or documentaries, but in the voice of the people who story is being told, right? Like that is incredibly powerful. So when you think about what you enjoy, those are the things that I would start surfacing. Like one person may not like to go to a museum, the next person's gonna thrive off of that. Find the things that uh, make sense to you and really resonate with your own learning. Uh, and then I'll offer one more step for you. And, and this is uh, just monitoring, right? And adjusting. So as we're, we're building these steps, out um, and we're working on our learning plan, we've already talked about cultural humility, which means, you know, we have to be self-reflective and we have to evaluate our progress. Um, you know, as you're moving along, whether it's short-term goals or long-term goals, sometimes we need to recalibrate, right? Like the, the action plan that we set in day one might not be the thing that we need to focus on as much as we move along. Um, and so I, I want to make sure that people have a way whether it is, you know, I'm going to check in monthly with myself or quarterly. Like, how are you assessing your progress towards these goals? Uh, and that's really important. Yeah, I, I've told people on a number of occasions that this is a, it, it's knowing what to do and then maybe not doing it, right? Like, that's the problem. So can we assess that we are actually on track? And do we have progress indicators? So I love your idea of a learning plan. Um, I actually, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic um, and uh, with the with the racial reckoning and uprisings, um, I read uh, an article about someone who had created, she created Google Sheet and created a learning plan for herself. And I said, that is an incredible idea. I'm going to do the same thing. So I started tracking, you know, what I was reading and, and like, you know, so I, you know, read many of the books that were on the bestseller list that jumped to the bestseller list uh, that year, if I hadn't read them already. Um, but then also, you know, listening to podcasts, I remember uh, I was listening to an episode of Code Switch and they happened to have a conversation around, okay, we're in, and this was, you know, 2020, so much was going on. And it was a kind of a, let's do a counterpoint on, are you reading serious books at this point? Or are you reading lighter fare? And so one of the books that was shared was a series of romance novels written by BIPOC authors. So I have had not read a lot of romance in a while, but it became my genre of choice during the pandemic, and but I all almost all of the ones that I read were were written by um, Black Indigenous uh, people of color rather than defaulting to the to the white authors. So get it. So you're I was reading you know what's a relatively it was it, you talked about making it fun. And so I'm reading, you know, a fun book. There's a formula for for how romance novels work. 
but there was a different perspective and there was there were the characters and the there was an insight into culture and i've always enjoyed um reading i read a lot of fiction uh, generally and you know looking for books that are written from you know many many different points of view many different authors with different identities um that t- to me each one of those is a window into a different experience. Obviously, it's one person's experience, but they're also describing their context, their things. So, you know, so much of what I've learned has have been through those kinds of um, versus the and you know, and I also you know had cast on my list to read too. So, <laughs> but I mean that you can have a balance and and so many different entry points, and you know that's kind of absorbing. And, and for um, as a person who does represent the dominant culture in the U.S., um, doing a little bit of my remedial education that has that most of us who are white need to do. Um, but it was it, it's been fun. And of course, I've done lots of different things with that. But it's, it's been fun to, to think about all the different ways that we can increase yeah. our skill, my skill. I can increase my skill. Let me not talk for other people. I appreciate it, but I appreciate you owning that too, right? Because that's a piece of it. We all can increase our skills. Some of us have had more experience in having to look at other people's cultures more intentionally than others. Uh, but in terms of do we all know it all? You know, no, absolutely not. There's so much more to learn. Um, and, you know, going back to what you just said about like finding fun ways to do things, like I, I think about... Um, this movie, I had it happen to stumble upon. It was called The Farewell. Um, and it was about a, a Asian family. Oh, that was such oh, a wonderful movie. Yes. It was beautifully done, right? And so I'm, I'm watching the movie. And it was maybe like a Saturday or, you know, some weekend day. And I'm watching it. And I don't want to give it away for people who haven't seen it. But part of the theme of this movie is how uh, different cultures deal with perhaps death and how they talk about that as a family. Um, and so one of the things that really And, and what, me it, what it means family. to take care of the family member. Yes, absolutely, right? So how do we care for people in this process, right? And so what struck me really profoundly as I was watching this is I realized, like I literally stopped for a second and I was like, I know about what happens in my family and maybe some other cultural groups that are really close to me. I was like, but I've never actually thought about this. Like, what does it mean to care for a loved one who has an illness? What does it mean to prepare for, you know, final passage for people? And and it just really struck me. And so what I think is really interesting about the exploration of cultural competencies is you don't necessarily know where it's going to take you. Right? Like I might have said, Hey, I haven't watched a, you know, a movie about this particular group in a while. Let me put that on only to find out as you're doing it, you know, there are a host of other questions that start surfacing or or interest and you just want to follow that thread. And so I really love that, but in particular, I think that movie hit home so much so cuz it it opened up a space for me where I was like, I don't I don't know a lot about this. I was like, and I'd like to learn. Yeah, yeah. And um I one that I just read uh, was called a book called uh, Sitting Pretty, and it's written from the it's a memoir uh, uh, by a woman who's been in a wheelchair since she was three uh, because of an illness she had early on. And 
and she's also a professor of disability studies. So, you know, she has her personal experience, but she has that wider context as well. And um, I won't be able to read another book or see another movie that has a, dis- a person with a disability with a character without hearing her voice in my head about all the tropes that she's so tired of seeing, which I, even with a, per- you know, I have a brother who has a disability, but I, you know, I didn't necessarily have that lens. So, um, yeah, it's so interesting what you will learn. In step five, we're talking about monitoring our cultural competence. And so how are we actively thinking about like what the steps are that we've laid out? Um, so whether those, again, are short term or long term, and then how are we recalibrating against our action? Uh, and so, you know, something that comes to mind is if I said to you, Carol, like my my plan is to run a marathon, right? The Baltimore Marathon just happened here the other day. And I know in order to run this marathon, I need to make sure that I'm getting up early in the morning so that I can get out there and start running, um, that I need to, you know, whether it is I need to eat a certain diet. I am not a runner, but I will say this. I need to eat a certain diet in order to get, you know, in shape for this race, et cetera. And I know that there are certain steps that I must if you call me and you check back and you say, you know, it's, it's, you've been doing this for a couple of months, like, how's everything going? How's your time, right? Is your personal record, um, you know, looking any, any better? Because this is something maybe I've, I've said is really important to me. It's more than I just want to run the marathon. Maybe I want to best myself. Um, and so if I tell you, you know, well, I've been meaning to get out there and I've, I've been meaning to run, but, uh, well, you know, it's been raining the last couple of days or, uh, you know, something came up, work got really busy. The reality is, if that was my goal to be able to run this marathon and we're getting closer and closer to the date, but I haven't been training effectively, right? I could still in- involve myself in this race, but the likelihood that I'm going to beat my personal record in this case is pretty low. That wouldn't be a surprise to you. And the reason I use like an example in this case is I think about all the things that we say. We know what we need to do, but we don't necessarily follow through with those steps. And so when you're building a cultural competency plan, it's the same thing. Like if I say I'm going to read 10 books on this topic or I'm going to watch movies on Netflix or I'm going to go to these you know, museums or these classes, et cetera, and then I fail to do it, there really ought not be a surprise at the end where it's like, did you deepen your cultural competencies? Well, partially because you've done something, but maybe not to the extent that you were hoping. And so in, in that way, I think it's really important to not only have a clear plan, but an opportunity to check in against your own progress, right? It's not somebody else telling you you have to do these things, but where do you stand? Yeah, and I, in, in describing um, my learning plan, the things that I, I mentioned were all kind of the things that I'm passively consuming, whether it's a, reading a book or watching a movie or listening to a podcast. But, you know, the thing that you, the other thing that you just mentioned around kind of checking in, you can check in with yourself on how you're doing, but it's often really helpful to have, you know, accountability partners that you're working with. And so, you know, I've joined um, white affinity groups so that we can, you know, challenge each other and uh, work through um, different resources to really have conversations and reflect on what we're learning, um, specifically for white women, because that's a particular identity that, especially in the nonprofit sector, that uh, needs, you know, we need to dig into. And and to not, um, and, and, you know, people are... uh, I don't know how familiar people are with affinity spaces, but many probably are, but certainly for that one, um, so that we can 
again, do that remedial education without burdening anybody else, burdening, uh, you know, and get across multicultural or multiracial group um, that, you know, uh, you, for example, would not need to hear us babble around and, and muck around and, and be a mess. And we could maybe have a little more competence the next time we showed up. So I think it's both and, and then also, you know, intentionally being in multi racial and cultural groups that had, in, you know, had a structure, had facilitation, had uh, some boundaries and parameters to help people learn as well. All those different things. It's like, you know, th those, those have all been helpful to me. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the both points that you just made. And, and I think about what it means to, one, you have a facilitated space, right? So you know that you're all gathered with the distinct purpose of whether it is a, a white affinity group or a multicultural group, we want to learn about different things. Um, and so I think that is certainly an avenue people can take. And I also wonder what it looks like for people who just simply say, I want to have friends that look different from me, that come from different places, that speak different languages, that are different sexual orientations, like you name it. How do we surround ourselves by, um, you know, the true diversity, quite frankly, of the world so that it's not that I simply have to go to a class or a, you know, a Zoom every, you know, every week uh, type of seminar. Um, but how do we make sure that these folks are people that are in our lives every single day? You know, I, I had someone say to me once and it was it was kind of a conversation stopper. And they're like, Danielle, I I want your perspective as a black woman. Now, this is somebody I care about um, and we're good friends. They are not black. I will start by saying that. Um, but it was a conversation stopper in that moment because I was like, you do realize everything that comes out of my mouth is my perspective as a black woman. I don't have another perspective to offer you, right? So like ask me the question as opposed to framing it in this really odd way of I want your, you know, your black woman's perspective. I was like, I don't speak for all of us. I can speak for me. And you hear that every time we get on the phone or we go out to lunch or whatever have you. And so it was just, I think it was eye-opening for that individual and it kind of made me chuckle, but I'm like, how often do we do that? You know, what's your perspective on this as a member of this group? And I'm like, talk to people, be like, let's not make the conversation weird. If you right, and and that kind of assumes a, a monolith, a mon, you know, one person can be representative of, of an entire group. So even in describing, you know, that, that memoir, that was one person's memoir, certainly she, you know, was sharing a lot from from the wider field that she is an expert in through, you know, getting a PhD in it. And she's describing her own lived experience. So it's, you know, it's both and, uh, but certainly not representing every, you know, disabled person who exists, oh, yeah, right? And 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 just be remembering that. The, the way that I ask people to think about it is if I, you know, whatever your social identity is, if I looked at you and we're having a conversation and I'm like, does every white woman, uh, you know, every black cisgender male think X, Y, Z, and you're a member of that group, your answer is going to be undoubtedly like, no, we don't think the same thing. But yet we're so willing to apply that thought process to groups that we do not belong to. Right. You know how they are. This is how they acted when this happens. And I'm like, who is they in this case, right? Like, and does that mean everyone? 
how can we slow the process down enough in our own cultural development to understand like I am experiencing something right now. This is a dynamic with this individual or the, you know, a specific group of people, meaning like maybe two or three in this moment. It does not mean everyone. Right. And even to decipher, you know, I'm thinking about a particular instance that I've been working through with some folks and and, and you know, just working styles. So, you know, is this a, an, an aspect of cultural perspective? Is this a, a working preference or working style? Is this around cultural norms? Is this around an individual thinking style? You know, yeah. it's difficult to know exactly what it might be. I mean, as I say it all out loud, the obvious thing would be talk to the person and have a conversation and come to some understanding versus just yeah. speculating, which we often do, and making up our own stories. But uh, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's a big part of it that, you know, the other piece is I do want to have some knowledge as I'm walking into a conversation, right? So if I'm dealing with someone or, or I'm, I'm working on a project with someone who is from a different cultural group for me. Having some knowledge of who they are, what their norms and values are is useful. And still, I need to be prepared that this knowledge that I have in this moment may not apply to this group. So, and I'll give you an example here. Like if I walked into a meeting um, and my goal was to gather feedback, um, and let's say I am meeting with some Asian colleagues, like I have understanding and knowledge of the culture that says, that many of them are indirect communicators, right? And so I may plan a ahead of time that I'm going to have to show up differently than I would as a very direct American type of communicator. But when I arrive there, if this group then turns out to be very direct in their approach, I need to be able to have the dexterity in that moment to switch. Yes, I know this to be true, but I can't hold you to it in the moment if you show up differently. And why that's important is I think that's another way that the monolith plays out. Well, you, you're supposed to act this way because this is what I know about your people. And I'm like, but they're still individuals, right? Like they get freedom of choice and, and how they show up much the same as the rest of us do. And so we can't hold people to that. I think the next level of building the confidence is being willing to pivot in the moment. Like that's a feedback loop in its own right. If you get there and you're doing something and people are like, you're being really strange, Carol, what's happening in this moment? Can you shift? You know what I mean? Like it, it, that's the thing. Can you shift in real time and perhaps then go back later and say like, hey, you know, I, I had believed that you were indirect communicators. And so I came with this particular, you know, uh, strategy. It didn't work. Tell me a little bit more about what is going to be effective. For you, right. So like to the point you were making, how do I gather feedback? to be better at this. And, and not uh, just name name what's going on, name the dynamic, name, you know, but your curiosity. Well, I made this assumption, clearly, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it's holding, tell me more. Yeah. yeah, but that's what you're doing is that cultural humility, right? To be able to admit, like, hey, you know what, I misstepped in this moment. Um, and I do think that is something that holds a lot of people back. They're afraid of getting it wrong, right? But here's the reality, like we all are going to get it wrong. If you open your mouth, you're going to get it wrong. I got it wrong already today several times, right? Like this is what happens as human beings. But where we can grow is if we're okay to fail in that moment, gather the feedback so that the next time we encounter a similar situation, you actually are smarter. 
you can approach it better. And so like, if we were to tease this out and think about teams, like, aren't we trying to build in many cases, a learning culture into our nonprofit? It's the same thing. If you set out on a project, right? We debrief everything. <laughs> That's like the nonprofit way. We debrief every meeting, every fundraising event, et cetera. What did we learn from it? What are the takeaways? And this is the same when it comes to cultural competency. What did I learn that I can now apply in the next interaction I have? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we could go, we could go several more rounds on this, but I, because uh, there's always, as we, as we started with cultural humility, humility, there's always more to learn. Um, but I really appreciate uh, what we were able to dig into today. Absolutely. Um, and yes, anytime you want to talk about this, you can definitely come back to this topic. It's a favorite. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Carol. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Danielle, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as Chardet Carbonell of 100 Ninjas for her production support. If you enjoy the show, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We appreciate you helping us get the word out. And until next time, thank you for everything you're doing to contribute and make an impact.